Today is November 25th, 2020. Trump kind of concedes the election. Joe Biden starts to pick his cabinet. And we discuss the election of 1876. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and family, to another fantastic episode. Let me tell you, let me tell you, we're looking at stuff on both sides of the aisle. We're discussing all the important issues, and I'm serious when I say today is the day. It's the best podcast that we've done so far. If you are new with us, thank you for coming along. We are doing our best on this political podcast to try and split the difference and find the middle between all of the craziness that we are seeing in this world. We're going to do our best to have informed opinions, try to have a little bit of unity, have some good conversation, and realize that there's both good stuff and bad stuff on both the left and the right side of the aisle. If that's something you're interested in, Come along with us as we go through our stories today and try to find all the sweet truth that lies in the middle. Before we start in our story number one, a little bit of housekeeping. We will not have a podcast for this coming Friday as it is the day after Thanksgiving and I, like many of you, want to be able to spend time with my family and close friends, hang out and have a good time. So there will be no podcast this coming Friday. The only thing we'd really have to report on for the news is maybe President Trump pardoning the turkey and who won the NFL football game. So everybody, enjoy your Thanksgiving, and we will catch you back here next Monday. So with all of that having been said, let's jump on into our story number one. So for our first story of the day, Donald Trump kind of concedes the election a little bit. So Donald Trump, I don't think, is ever going to actually say that he lost ever, probably, if I know Donald Trump or, you know, if we all know Donald Trump and how he's acted for the past four years, he's probably not going to actually concede, you know, he's going to just float around and claim that the election was stolen from him probably until he dies. Well, he did, however, uh, give the GSA or the General Services Administration authorization to go ahead and start giving the Biden transition team about the $6 million that they would need to be able to start getting the transition to move over smoothly. So although this is not an outright, you know, concession of the election, it is apparent that Donald Trump is kind of realizing what's happening and he's kind of seeing the writing on the wall a little bit. And he's saying, you know what, time for us to kind of go ahead and start maybe moving stuff in that direction. So Michigan went ahead and certified the results about a day or so ago and have Biden winning. Looks like Georgia, I think, is going to totally certify, certify, certify their results here soon as well. Donald Trump has been the apparent loser. He needs to go ahead and concede and move on. So um, we can go ahead actually and hop in now um, and take a look at uh, ABC reporting on all this as well. Tonight, President Trump is finally nodding to reality, authorizing his team to begin the transition to a Biden administration. The move was made official by the General Services Administration, which will now provide Biden with more than $6 million in transition funding and office space in government buildings. The president implied he had signed off on the move, tweeting, quote, in the best interests of our country. And he said he had instructed his team to cooperate as well. That should open the door to classified intelligence briefings for the Biden team and to access to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Okay, so um, the whole country has known for a little while, obviously, that this is coming. I think that 
Donald Trump has worked hard to try and convince, especially a portion of his followers, that he actually won the election. But I don't think a whole lot of people actually bought into that, right? Like, yes, there was a portion of the Republicans that believe that Donald Trump was kind of like ripped or it was all fraudulent that Donald Trump actually won. But even amongst the people that think that there was a lot of fraudulent activity in the election, most of those people even still didn't believe that Joe Biden actually lost and Donald Trump actually won. So... Everybody's kind of been waiting on this, kind of seeing what's going to play out for everything. Uh, but it's kind of good to see things finally starting to move along in that direction. Um, it's about This is about as close to a concession, I think, as we're going to see out of Trump. And at this point, I think he's still fighting lawsuits in court. He's still getting turned down by federal district judges. Uh, he's still kind of making a little bit of an embarrassment of himself, especially Rudy Giuliani, which has been an incredible fall from grace for him. So... Um, his legal team, I think, is going to still continue to try and prove fraud. Donald Trump has made a couple of different hints over the past couple of days that like, he still thinks that there's a chance for him to be able to prove that there was a bunch of electoral fraud and stuff like that. So we'll have to see how all that kind of ends up starting to play out over the next couple of weeks. But I don't think that it's going to end up having any type of real life consequences into what all is going on right now. I don't think that we're going to see the election results flip in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, or Arizona, Nevada. Like, you're not going to see any of that happen. Donald Trump lost. It's time for him to move on. It's time for the country to move on as well. And that's what Joe Biden has been saying for the past couple weeks. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that the Biden campaign really wants to be able to step in and have more control over is really the coronavirus response and the coronavirus task force. So Biden obviously has been very, very critical of Donald Trump, as have a lot of Democrats and even some Republicans as well, as well as how Donald Trump has taken on the coronavirus. And a lot of that has to do with how the coronavirus task force, which is headed up by Mike Pence, has handled certain things like getting PPP or PPE out to um, the vast majority of the country, like how they're handling the vaccines and what's going to happen with that. And Joe Biden is basically stepping in and saying, "Look, we need to have some insight into how all this is happening, so that when you know January twentieth rolls around, we can hit the ground running and make sure that things are taken care of." Um, I don't know how much more information. I'm sure there's a ton of information that the Joe Biden team is going to be able to get from the coronavirus task force that, you know, the American public isn't necessarily totally privy to. Um, but that's been the huge hitting point from the Biden campaign team and saying that Donald Trump is stalling all this and it actually is going to end up having much more detrimental effects to the American public because the Biden team isn't prepared to be able to take on the coronavirus in the way that they should because Trump hasn't authorized the GSA to give them money and transfer over confidential documents and whatnot. So a lot of that, I think, is you know, overblown. Like, I think the Biden team and Democrats are going to be able to get in there and handle things properly from now until January 20th. They still do have plenty of time to be able to make the transition properly. Um, but I also would like to point out that, like, taking two to three weeks by the General Service Administration to be able to get a, stuff moved over and monies transferred over to the, you know, incoming administration really isn't crazy, right? Like, I think that you're hearing a lot of stuff on the media right now that, like, this has taken an unprecedented amount of time in order to be able to get Biden the resources that he needs. And that's not necessarily true. I do think that Donald Trump has been acting like a child over the past couple weeks. And it's pretty obvious that he lost and he's not making it easy on Joe Biden. 
But to, to act like everything that's happening right now is just totally unprecedented and just a total degradation of our society at whole uh, because of Donald Trump, I don't necessarily think that's a fair critique of Donald Trump either. So um, it's obviously exhausting watching all this happen, and it's obviously exhausting watching Donald Trump trying to incite his followers to think that everything was stolen from him. But has Donald Trump done anything illegal? No. All right. Immoral or stupid? I guess you can make the argument there, but he's not done anything illegal. He's not doing anything totally out of the ordinary. So with all of that having been said, let's hop on into our story number two. So our second story of the day, Joe Biden really starts to pick out his cabinet. So this is incredibly important. He's had a couple of things, a couple of people that he's chosen over the past week or so that he's kind of hinted that are going to be like his chief of staff or kind of work there in the White House for him and with him. But this uh, on Tuesday, yesterday, um, he came out and actually gave a little bit more of a formal framework for who he was going to be picking to actually be, you know, within the executive branch. So um, some pretty interesting picks. Some of them are a little bit more establishment. Some of them are a little bit progressive. The vast majority of them are very, very moderate. Um, and he's got a lot of people kind of being like, good, this is exactly what needs to happen. So, um, some of the more establishment picks are maybe like John Kerry, who's supposed to head up a special envoy for climate change. You know, John Kerry's been a Democratic Party establishment member for a long time now. You know, he's been in and out of the White House in various roles, especially under the Obama administration. So he's he's been in he's been in politics for a while. Um, we can go ahead and hop in right now. Uh, listen a little bit to uh, USA Today did a little brief talking about some of the different people that he's building out in his cabinet. This morning, President-elect Joe Biden beginning to build out his cabinet with a diverse group including several firsts diverse, to major posts. Keyword. He wants to have a diversity of voices at the table because he fully understands that's how he's going to move an agenda forward. NBC News learning from two sources, former Fed Chair Janet Yellen is the choice for Treasury Secretary to be announced soon. She'd be the first woman in that post. Right, so you'll notice the, the first things that they're hitting right off the bat is diversity. And that's like, you know, been the big push from Democrats for a long time now, and everybody kind of knows it. But the big thing I think that Joe Biden, I mean, especially with choosing Kamala Harris as his vice president, you know, her being a black woman, very, very important. And a lot of the progressives have really, really been pushing for there to be a lot more diversity in the White House, especially amongst women and certain minorities. So, um, he, you know, he picked a couple of different people. So the first female director of national intelligence in Avril Haynes, uh, the first Latino and immigrant secretary of Homeland Security in Alejandro, um, Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, you heard there also Janet Yellen, which I'll get into a little bit more. Um, but uh, he's kind of kind of going through and picking some first like first female that's been in certain positions or the first you know Latino person that's been in certain positions and all of this is a direct play at the progressives and he's kind of he's doing this very purposefully but the interesting thing is is he's kind of putting more moderates in these positions so one of the funniest things about the progressive side of the Democratic Party is that they want diversity at pretty much all costs it doesn't even necessarily matter if the person and kind of lines up with all of the things that they want, uh, as long as there's diversity there. Now, obviously, the left side of the aisle hates Candace Owens, even though she's a black woman, because she espouses things that are just too far away. But if you're a moderate Democrat, most of the time progressives are going to be okay with that, as long as you are a you know woman or black or a minority of some sort. 
And so he's picking a lot of these people to these positions. And for the most part, they're very, very moderate. And it's appeasing the progressives just simply because they're minorities and they're women. Uh, you'll notice how earlier when he was picking a couple of different people uh, to fill out some of his chief of staff and some people that would be working and advising him, they were all Democratic establishment, you know, moderate Democrat white men, right? And a lot of the progressive, like the Justice Democrats, they couldn't stand it and they didn't like it because they were moderates and they were white men. And like, unfortunately, a lot of the more progressive leaning side of the Democratic Party is just like, well, as long as we're being diverse, everything's okay. Kind of, I personally don't think that's the best move in the world, but you know, whatever floats your boat. So um, one of the more moderate picks that I think is going to be very, very good is Janet Yellen for Treasury Secretary. So I think she's the best pick that he's had so far. Um, she's incredibly experienced. Uh, she was the chair of the Federal Reserve for a long time. So she's worked in the Fed for a while. She managed a lot of that was during the Obama era. Um, and she is very a close acquaintances with Jerome Powell, who is the current chair of the Fed. And I think that they will do a very good job working kind of in tandem back and forth in order to be able to manage the probably impending gigantic recession that is going to happen within the next year or so as a result of this coronavirus pandemic and honestly a result of Joe Biden hiking taxes as well. So, um, there's going to be a lot of different things that move and a lot of things that are in play. And we need somebody as the Treasury Secretary that is incredibly experienced and knows what they're doing. Now, she does lean a little bit more toward the left side of the aisle. I don't agree with every decision that she made as the Fed chair, but she's smart. She's an incredible economist. Economist. She's very, very well established. She's very well known. She's not corrupt. She's not crazy. She's a solid, moderate pick. Um, a lot of the more progressive side of the aisle wanted Elizabeth Warren to be chosen as Treasury Secretary. I don't know why. I personally think she would have been an absolutely terrible pick. She's just incredibly left-leaning, so that's why the progressives want her. Um, not only is she really far left, but she also does not have a ton of experience managing or running at a large scale monetary or fiscal policy. Um, Elizabeth Warren is very smart. She's a very accomplished uh, politician and also Harvard professor, but you know, I just don't think that she would have been a great pick for this. Like, just because she's a progressive doesn't mean that she needs to be, you know, in the cabinet. I think that Joe Biden very purposefully chose Janet Yellen to be in the cabinet because she's not extremely far left and progressive. I think that what Biden is going for here is to, to try and bridge the gap a little bit and bring a little bit of unity like he said that he was going to do. And Janet Yellen was a great way to do it. So, He's kind of stepping forward and making a lot of these picks that are, you know, much more moderate. And I personally think it's a pretty, pretty awesome move for him. So uh, with all of that having been said, though, I, I don't want it to make it sound like Joe Biden is like picking a totally in the middle or even like reaching across the aisle and picking up Republicans to get into his cabinet. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's still very much a Democrat, like a Democratic uh Cabinet and Democratic advisors, right? Like the Republicans aren't getting into the administration anytime soon. Democrats will be running the executive branch and they'll be running it like Democrats. But it is not like it would have been if he would have had a bunch of people that were very, very far left-leaning progressives like um, like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders in there. Uh, I mean, a ton of these more left-leaning Democrats and progressives would have honestly made his administration look and act and walk and talk completely differently. So 
Um, I think that this is also going to start to maybe assuage some of the some of the fears that a lot of people have had, especially around Kamala Harris. Uh, Harris is very much a very left leaning Democrat, so I think a lot of people were very concerned if about if Joe, something were to happen to Joe Biden, God forbid, and you know he weren't able to continue to be the president, he wasn't able to continue to be the president. Well, then Harris would step in, and she's a pretty far left leaning Democrat. Well, with a more moderate cabinet, uh, that I think would maybe maybe shift the shift that away a little bit so that it wasn't nearly as progressive with Kamala Harris as president. Now, she could step in and obviously fire everybody that was in the cabinet and choose her own cabinet all over again. But I think that that, for the most part, would she would catch a pretty good amount of flack from her party if she were to do that. So I think Joe Biden is trying to set everything up so that it is much, much more moderate, which I appreciate and I think is incredibly smart, especially considering the political climate that we're in right now and uh, I think how worried people were about this transition of power from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Uh, I think that Joe Biden is playing his cards right in a lot of ways right now. I can't be super upset with a lot of the picks that he's made. Most of them have been in politics for a while. They know what they're doing. They're smart and they're accomplished. So we'll have to see you know, how all of it plays out. and We'll, we'll definitely have to see how some of his decisioning, especially within the first hundred days of his office, really starts to take place and shape once he has that you know cabinet in there. But with you know more moderates, it does look like he's going to try and get away from uh, a lot of the more progressives on that side of the aisle outside of certain subjects like maybe climate change, right? So we'll have to see what happens. But um, for the most part, looks like everything's going to be headed in a more moderate and unified direction. So uh, with all of that, that ends our story number two, and we're going to head on into our story number three. So for our third story of the day, this one is actually going to be a little bit different. Uh, So over the past couple of weeks, and really over the past couple months, I have heard a lot of different things uh, I think from friends and family and people that I know on both sides of the aisle, and I've also heard a lot of things from the media about the specific climate that we're in right now. Uh, a lot of things such as we are more divided than we've ever been. Uh, the country is on the brink of a civil war. Uh, democracy as we know it is being threatened, whether by Donald Trump or by far-left progressives. Doesn't matter which side of the aisle, everyone thinks that democracy is being threatened. Uh, There's also been renewed calls from especially the Democrats on the left side of the aisle for abolishing the Electoral College and trying to pack the Supreme Court. So what I think would be very helpful, and while we have a little bit of a slower news week, to sit down and look at a specific election and a specific time period that I think gives us a lot of very, very good perspective around where we're at right now, where we've been as a country, and hopefully where we will continue to go. So I want to talk through the election of 1876. Many of you right now are probably going to look up and you're going to be like, I know literally nothing about the election of 1876. Well, here's the time we're going to go ahead and talk through it. I think that it is an incredibly important election and framing our understanding of why our electoral system is created the way that it was, why our constitution prescribes certain things, and the fact that it actually works. And it has worked in the past, and it's going to work right now at a time where I would argue we were much more divided as a country as we, than we are right now. And we were able to push through it. And I think that we were able to be better as a result of it. So 
I'll go ahead and maybe place a little bit of context around what was happening during the election and before the election of 1876. So this was about a decade, a little over a decade, after the Civil War ended. The Civil War was by far the bloodiest war that the United States had ever seen. We'd lost more American lives in that war than any other war previously, and it would beat every other war after that as well in terms of cost of American lives. Um, there were people, brothers fighting against brothers, families fighting against families, and all of it centered around the incredibly abhorrent institution of slavery. Um, whites owning blacks across the country and across the South, but uh, a group of the states in the southern part of the United States decided to rise up and to fight against the North in order to be able to keep the institution of slavery alive. Well, following Abraham Lincoln's murder, his assassination in 1865, Andrew Johnson, a Democrat, stepped into office and did a very, very poor job of leading the country because he honestly didn't have much of a problem with slavery and, for the most part, he wanted blacks to be subjugated continually. He was impeached, he did a horrible job as president, and the United States needed a lot of coming together and they needed somebody to step up and lead the country well. Well, in steps Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses Grant, personally, I think was one of the better presidents that the United States had had, has had, and he stepped in at a time when we absolutely needed him most. He was a Republican through and through, and fought very, very hard in the Civil War to be able to fight against slavery. He couldn't stand slavery, he was an abolitionist through and through, and he wanted very much so to be able to see blacks come into a place where they were educated, where they were productive members of society, and they weren't subjugated, and they weren't oppressed. So, for the entirety of the eight years, the two full terms that Grant was in office, he worked very hard to make sure that that happened. Uh, he worked alongside Frederick Douglass and other prominent black leaders to make sure that blacks could be elected to office in the South, whether it was senatorial races or races in the House of Representatives. And through all of it, I think that he did a pretty good job of trying to get more, I guess, blacks educated and into positions of power. Well, one of the huge and growing problems, and especially in that eight years that Grant was in office was the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Shirts and other various awful white supremacist ter domestic terrorist organizations. They were, I mean, absolutely running rampant throughout the South, uh, burning black people alive, murdering people, lynching people, horrible and completely unspeakable things, right? Well, Ulysses Grant wanted 100% for that to be gone. So he worked very hard to try and, you know, get rid of that as much as possible through the use of federal troops. Well, that created a huge divide, especially within the Republican Party, which was the anti-slavery party. The Republicans were split. Did they want to continue to have Reconstruction principles there, where federal troops were stationed in the South and protecting black people, or did they want to be able to pull those federal troops out and hopefully allow the southern states to be able to feel like they were actually part of the Union again? And this caused a, a huge divide within the Republican Party and a huge divide within the nation. And I think although we look back on the United States coming out of the Civil War and we think that, all right, the war was fought and it was over, you know, it ended in 1865 and that's when things ended. That's not necessarily true. The Civil War kind of ended up going on in a long for a long time after 
1865, but it was more of kind of just a cold war, right? In some ways, it was political. Um, in other ways, it was people actually going and being lynched and horrible stuff happening. Um, and, you know, brave men had to step up in order to be able to protect people that now had citizenship in the United States that once didn't have that before. So in steps the election of 1876. The United States was still incredibly divided. You had not just the Southern Democrats that felt like Reconstruction needed to end, but you also had a portion of more moderate Republicans that also believed that Reconstruction needed to end. Uh, even though the Republicans were the ones that fought to be able to end slavery, there was still a portion of the Republican Party that was incredibly racist and, for the most part, didn't want to see blacks rising to positions of power. So, Leading up to the 1876 election, there was an inc absolutely incredible amount of corruption within the election system, uh, especially on the part of the Democrats in the South. They were going around and, you know, burning ballot boxes. They were attacking people in their homes. In South Carolina specifically, there were multiple areas where uh, whites were going around and actually burning whole houses down, dragging people out in the middle of the night and whipping them and beating them or shooting them, dragging them down to the river horrible acts of racism that were committed all over the South, and it was done to be able to convince the blacks to not go and vote at all. They knew that all of the black population would go and vote wholeheartedly for the Republicans. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, which was who was running on the pre on the Republican ticket in 1876, was a thorough abolitionist, and it had been endorsed by Ulysses Grant, who was, in a lot of ways, just as popular as Abraham Lincoln was for the vast majority of the African-American community in the South. So, all of this horrible corruption was happening all throughout the country, and it was all happening leading up to probably one of the most important elections within the United States history. So, it gets up to Election Day, and it looks like the Democrat, uh, his name was Samuel J. Tilden, was going to win. He had an incredibly strong lead in the very beginning, was winning all the way across the country. He was from, he was governor of and from New York, and so he won New York handily, which at the time had an incredibly large amount of electoral votes compared to vast majority of other states. So Samuel Tilden eventually gets up, and after the, after the election day, he has 184 electoral votes. Well, at this point in time, you needed 185 in order to be able to win. Samuel Tilden also had the vast majority of the popular votes as well. So Rutherford B. Hayes, having only 165 electoral votes at this time and not having won the popular vote, was presumed to have lost. However, there were three states that were still outstanding because of the incredible amount of fraud and distrust that had happened within the electoral system. And that was South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. All of them southern states that had had an incredibly large amount of horrible things done to blacks that were there that would have been voting Republican. So for weeks, they go back and forth trying to figure out who actually won the election. In South Carolina, specifically, Governor Wade Hampton III, or he claimed himself to be governor, uh, stepped in as on the Democratic ticket and claimed that he won. At the same time, the Republicans stepped in and claimed that they won. So the government, the state government within South Carolina, actually split for the only time in history. Both governments were running simultaneously a Republican-led government and a Democratic-run government at the same time, both claiming wholeheartedly that they won and both claiming that the other side was doing unspeakable things in order to be able to corrupt the electoral process. 
While all of this is happening, they're still trying to figure out who actually won the state for the president and for the governor and, you know, who the Senate and House of Representatives picks were going to be as well. So what ends up happening is they end up going into Congress and trying to figure out the best way to be able to figure out who won, right? Well, in order to do this, they created a totally bipartisan commission made up of 15 people. It was five Democrats, five Republicans, and then five people sitting on the Supreme Court. Fortunately, it actually ended up swaying eight to seven based upon uh, the Supreme Court picks, which one of them, they ended up having three members of the Supreme Court that were a bit more conservative or Republican-leaning, um, and then two of them that actually were on the more Democratic side of the aisle. This ended up swaying things so that the Republicans would have held the majority in the committee that was putting together who to how to be able to attack this voter fraud problem. Well, at the end of the day, all three of those states, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, actually ended up going to Rutherford B. Hayes, who was the Republican, in an incredibly surprised turnout because he had an incredibly large black population and the black population voted for the Republicans. In the original counting, that didn't happen because Democrats were literally burning ballots. So, why is all of that important? Well, if you do your math right, you figure out that Rutherford B. Hayes actually won 185 electoral votes compared to Tilden's 184. It was the closest electoral victory, the closest presidential victory that had ever happened, and Rutherford B. Hayes also lost the popular vote. So, what that tells me is that at a time when there didn't need to be a Democrat in the presidency because Tilden himself, although he wasn't from the South and although he wasn't, you know, someone that was going to be pushing for slavery to continue on, he was incredibly, um, I guess, soft on the Democratic Southerners is the best way to put it. And he wanted Reconstruction to end completely. And he wanted for the Southern, Southern Democrats to basically be able to run things and implement Jim Crow-style laws all across the South. Rutherford B. Hayes, on the other hand, was an avid abolitionist and did not want for that to happen. At this point in time, we are by far literally the most divided that we could possibly be. And we had the vast majority of the country vote for somebody that would actually get in and be soft on slaveholders and incredibly racist people throughout the South. We needed the electoral college system to work, and we needed it to work properly. Fortunately, it did. And Rutherford B. Hayes ended up stepping into the presidency and doing his best to be able to stop a lot of the racism that was going on. Obviously, he didn't do a perfect job, and Jim Crow laws ended up getting implemented, and racism still persists in the South. But without the Electoral College stepping in and allowing Rutherford B. Hayes to be able to win, this, win the actual presidency, I think the United States would be an incredibly different point in time right now. So when we're looking at and we're examining the elections that are happening currently, I think it's important to think back on history and to understand, well, there were times where things were much worse off, but the Constitution that our forefathers created and the system that we have right now is working very, very specifically to ensure that there isn't an incredible rise of power on one side of the aisle that would actually end up destroying the country in horrible ways. Uh, this is why it's important to not pack the Supreme Court. This is why it's important to keep the Electoral College the way that it is. And it's also important to be able to keep a little bit of perspective when you're looking at where we're at right now and hopefully where we can be in many, many years from now. So... With all of that having been said, let's end the show there on something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is obvious. It's Thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is so much fun. All the delicious food, all the delicious sweets. We have good time with family, good time with friends, good food, good drink, good football, just good all the way around. Everybody loves Thanksgiving. If you are not an American, I do have some non-American listeners. So if you're not an American, I'm sorry that you don't get to come and celebrate Thanksgiving. We'd love to have you here anytime for Thanksgiving because it's a great time. Uh, but <laughs> Thanksgiving is a wonderful holiday for us to be able to celebrate as Americans because it does in some way hopefully make you think about ways that you can give back and be thankful for the life that you've been blessed with. So with all that, we're going to go ahead and end the show there. Thank you for listening in. Make sure to check me out on all the funnest social media platforms from Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast with one T, Facebook at Split the Difference, YouTube at Split the Difference, or on my website at SplitTheDifference.com. Go and check me out. Give me a like, a subscribe. Give me a review, five stars if you can, because all that stuff helps as much as possible. And always remember, guys, we're going to do our best to keep a level head, to totally be reasonable, and to always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.